We are uh, studying 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 through 34, and 1 Kings 17 in its entirety, 1 through 24. The title of today's lesson is The King, the Prophet, and a Widow. And by the way, if you missed uh, Brian's announcement, there, there were some handouts back there. I don't know if everybody has one or there are no more, but... <clears throat> There were some handouts back there if you're interested in one, and if they are all, all out, I apologize. Just uh, snuggle up to somebody that you're allowed to snuggle up to and uh, <laughs> share with them, all right? By way of outline, our outline is a short one this morning. It is two main points. The first one will be a survey of King Ahab. And this will take us through that last part of 1 Kings chapter 16, which are verses 29 through 34. And the second main point this morning is going to be the prophet and the widow. And these two points, excuse me, this point will take us through the entirety of 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 24. As I like to do by way of lesson frame, I like to provide you with some working themes that you can be on the lookout in our lesson. And this morning, there's, there was much thought that was given to what these lesson frames should be, could be. As is often the case, there's a myriad of themes that one can take away, a myriad of lessons that one can take away from God's word but two that I decided on, that I landed on this morning, and that I really encourage you to look for as we develop our study this morning, are obedience and faith, and I'll, and I'll add a, another one that's not on there, I'll cheat really quick, or the lack thereof. So obedience and faith, or the lack thereof, and divine provision. That is godly provision, provision from above, provision from God directly to his children. These two themes, as we study God's word this morning, I think will become abundantly clear to all of us. But I do encourage you to seek them out as we go through today's lesson. Having said that, let's jump into the first point this morning. And again, we're beginning in chapter 16, verses 29 through 34 of 1 Kings. And that is a survey of King Ahab. This first point is broken into two major subpoints. So we're going to look at a survey, an overview of King Ahab and his kingdom, his reign, and what he did by way of two central points. The first subpoint, excuse me, the first central subpoint is Ahab's reign. Ahab's reign. Look at verse 29 with me. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. In verse 29, we're introduced to Ahab's reign for the very first time. Following the death of his father Omri, Ahab assumes control of the northern kingdom and becomes king over Israel. Verse 
29, there should be no mistake about this, juxtaposes Ahab's new reign against the established reign of Asa in the south. Many of us will recall that Asa is the king to Judah, the southern kingdom. And so there's a comparison there in verse 29. The implication of this juxtaposition in verse 29 is that God's blessing is with the southern kingdom now because he has provided stability and a ruler who has reigned for many years. And if it is with the southern kingdom, it is no longer with the northern kingdom. The length of Ahab's reign in Israel is 22 years, we're told. And I'll just add this information for you. Ahab is the seventh and, and really the final king of the northern kingdom that we will see. <clears throat> this leads us to our second sub-point as we view the survey of Ahab's kingdom, of Ahab's life, Ahab's wickedness. We've seen Ahab's reign. Look at Ahab's wickedness in verses 30 through 34 Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him and it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat that he married Jezebel the daughter of Eth Baal king of the Sidonians and went to serve Baal and worshipped him so he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Heel, the Bethlehite, built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segeb, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Verses 30 through 34 really do describe Ahab's wickedness for us in vivid form though it seems as we read about Israel's history and, and those of us that have been here uh, a little more consistently can really attest to this, as we read about Israel's history during this period of the divided kingdom, it seems that all of the kings we have studied fervently pursued the title of most wicked king. Seems like they're in a race to see who can win this undesirable title. It is Ahab, however, that has the, I would say, dishonor of winning this title, according to verse 30. In verses 30 through 31, we're detailed a few of Ahab's wicked characteristics, namely the fact that he has a trivial view of sin, we're told in verse 31. And it is exactly this trivial view. And, and by the way, by trivial here, I, I mean 
lacking importance. There, there's a lack of importance, of seriousness, when Ahab views and thinks about sin. It is trivial in his mind. It is not that big of a deal. This trivial view of sin, we're told, is what facilitates Ahab's repetition of the sins of his forefathers. And there's a question that naturally arises here and has to be asked, and it is this, what, what are those sins? What are the sins of Ahab's forefathers? What sins did Jeroboam commit? You'll recall as we've been studying God's word together that, that the main, that the central sin of the forefathers of Jeroboam was idolatry. And idolatry is exactly Ahab's sin. And from idolatry flows so many other sins. That is the truth. Prioritizing his own advancement over obedience to his God leads to an unholy union with an ungodly woman, Jezebel, who hated the true God of Israel and instead worshipped the false god, Baal. This unholy union leads Ahab to the service and worship of Baal himself. According to the last part of verse 31 and in verse 32, we see that his service and worship include two things. The building up of a house in which Baal, the, fa the false god of his now wife, can be worshipped and an altar within that house of worship so that false sacrifices can be offered to this false god. To make matters worse, this house and this altar are built in Samaria, in Israel, in the land of God, in the midst of the people of God. The building of the offer, the offering of the sacrifices, the false God, verse 33 really bookends for us what, what was started in verse 30. Ahab was not only the most wicked king in the history of Israel, he also did more to provoke God than any other king. And, and this would make sense, wouldn't it? Think about your, your kids. I know we don't judge our kids, and we tell them things like, look, we love you guys all the same. But they're not here right now, and so we can speak freely. <laughs> and uh, I don't deny for you that I love my children all the same. There is some enjoyment, more enjoyment with, with you know, some maybe than others. And uh, they may hear this, so I'm being very, very vague about this. But that is the truth isn't it? And, and so in that sense, we, we get a glimpse here that, that it is the child that, that is the most ruckus. It is the child that, that is the hardest to contain sometimes that provokes what in us the most? It is provokes our anger the most. Sometimes even ungodly and unrighteous anger and, and so it stands to reason, right, that, that Ahab, if, if he is guilty of this title of the most wicked king of Israel, it stands to reason that he would also 
be the winner of provoking God to anger the most. So that makes sense, but I, I, thought that was, I thought that was kind of funny because I could relate certainly both in provoking my parents to anger uh, an untold number of times and my children doing the same to me now. But in verse 34, I want to point out to you how interesting it is. That is verse 34 itself. It, it seemingly, seemingly excuse me, stands alone and seems to have been added to the wrong section of Scripture when you read it for the first time. In fact, one commentator notes about verse 34, this verse seems to have little reason for occupying its present position. It reads like a curious aside about Jericho. But verse 34 is not mistakenly placed where we read it. It is there on purpose, and it is there correctly. In one sense, the author's purpose in verse 34 is to provide one more piece of evidence regarding Ahab's wickedness. You see, his wickedness notwithstanding what we've read about him already, Ahab would have been well aware of Joshua's curse on Jericho. And in fact, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I encourage you to turn with me to Joshua chapter 6 so that we can all see this together. Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. Joshua 26, excuse me, verse 26 says the following, Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation, and with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. This that we just read is what Ahab would have been very familiar with. Furthermore, any and all building and or rebuilding within Israel required not permits like we do today, but the king's permission. It required for the king to be knowledgeable of what was occurring, what was going to be built or rebuilt, and it required his permission. And so in that sense, Ahab not only knew of heels rebuilding of Jericho, he permitted this very rebuilding of Jericho. And it is this permission that reveals Ahab's disregard for Israel's history, but more importantly, his disregard for God's word. His, his willingness to ignore what God has done in the past. Whatever Ahab's standard or standards were for living daily life, it is safe to conclude that they did not include any consideration of God or his word. But verse 34 isn't only interesting, it's important. Because though it provides another piece of evidence about Ahab's wickedness, it also speaks to the unending hope that we have in God. The phrase, according to the word of the Lord in verse 34, equates Joshua's curse of Jericho with that of prophecy. In other words, 
when a prophet was getting ready to speak authoritatively on behalf of God, he would often start with, according to the word of the Lord, or thus says the Lord. And so, therefore, when we read this phrase in verse 34, the curse that Joshua presents on Jericho is elevated to that same level of authority as prophecy. And that is very, very important. By providing the details of what occurred to Hiel as he rebuilt Jericho, by confirming that Hiel's rebuilding of Jericho cost this man his sons, the author in verse 34 is confirming that God's word came to pass just as Joshua had prophesied. The author's point in verse 34 is that God's word remained and remains throughout history. And that should be a point of hope for all of us here this morning. Before we move on, let me just say a few things in conclusion and application about this section of Scripture. I confess to you that after reading 1 Kings 16, 29 through 34 for my own personal study and in preparation for this morning, I, I wondered how Ahab's story applied to me. And in a broader sense, I wondered how it would apply to us here this morning. And, and I truly do hope that as we've read these verses, there's some sense, there's some part of you that wonders the same thing. How does, how does this apply to me? What does this have to do with me? As I read and contemplated, I was struck by a number of things in these verses. For example, I was struck by just how far-reaching and devastating sin can impact our lives if we allow it to. Like, like Ahab and the devastating impacts of sin on his life to the point that it drove him to, to lose his position as king over Israel. I was also struck and haunted by the question of what could have been as I read through and thought through these verses. And what I mean by that question, what could have been, is what could have been of Israel's kings had they humbled themselves before their God and sought his glory instead of their own glory? What could have been? What additional greatness could have occurred? What additional glory could have been brought to God's holy name. I was, I was struck by that. I was, I was even crushed to think, and I'm speaking to you as a father this morning. You remember the father that loves his children equally the same. <laughs> I, I was crushed by the thought, by reading that a man could be willing to sacrifice his two boys for the temporal glory of rebuilding a city. I was crushed by that. 
you could offer me to find Atlantis and never have to work a day in my life. And I think the sentiment rings true throughout everyone here who is a father or a mother. It doesn't matter. You're not getting my boys. And that should have been this man's attitude, but it wasn't. Sorry, I get a little emotional because those little guys, I really do love them. They drive me crazy, but I really do love them. I wouldn't have done it. And I know that you guys wouldn't have done it. But two things, two things by way of application really, really stand out to me. The one is this. Follow me here, if you would, please, for just a few moments. What have we done? What are we doing? And what will we do with the talents, the gifts, abilities, and time God has provided us? And that is a heavy question. And I'll tell you right now, I did not want to ask myself this question. Because I already know the answer. I already know the answer. I already know that I'm not doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. I'm all, I already know that I haven't used God's time the way that I should be using it. And so I stand guilty. I stand condemned before this very answer. And I want to be very open and true to you. But the question rings true. It is there and it must be asked. And we must examine our own hearts. And you might wonder, how'd you come up with that from Ahab and his wickedness? Because I kept thinking of this man in the 22 years that God gave him to reign over Israel. I kept thinking of, no doubt, the, the many talents and the abilities that this man must have had. And yet, what does he do? He wastes all of it away. 22 years as a 43-year-old, I will grant to you, is a long time, but it's nowhere near as long as I thought it used to be when I was 10. But it's some time. So I'll leave you just with this thought and then I'll move on to the second point. What would it be said of you and me if we, if we play pretend for just a little bit, if we, if we pretend that it is written of us how it was written of Ahab and Edwin, son of Ricardo, was given the gift of preaching God's word. And he preached it for 30 years and he did. What would be said? How would that end for you? I'm not condemning. Believe me, I was disheartened to look back on everything I don't do that I'm supposed to do, I was encouraged and picked up by God's grace, by knowing that in him, what I do is magnified, is glorified, because I'm imperfect. But he uses it for his glory. So I'm not condemning. Instead, I'm challenging to think, to not have a trivial view, but to really take God's things seriously. To really take full advantage 
of what he gives us. All right, I have to move on. The second thing, what stood out to me? The second thing is this. And man, this, this ought to encourage all of us. God's word remains active and will come to pass. Think about this very quickly, please. There's approximately 500 years between Joshua and Ahab. Okay, I'm gonna say it again. 500 years between Joshua and Ahab. All those years later, God's word came to pass. And it didn't just come to pass. It came to pass exactly the way God said that it would. And no amount of sin or darkness was able to thwart God's word coming to pass. All of these years later, the same thing has happened. An untold amount of sin has occurred and an untold amount of attempts have been made to eradicate Christians, to eradicate God's word. And yet, what do we have in 2003? We have God's word still active, still working, still coming to pass. Isaiah 55, 11 says, So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Be encouraged. Be challenged to take what God has given you seriously, not trivially, to maximize everything that God has given you for his glory and be encouraged by the fact that God's word remains and it will Come to pass. This leads us to our second point. This morning, that is the prophet and the widow. Before we jump into this uh, second point, I'd like to make just a few points that will help us with our context. Hopefully help us with our understanding of chapter 17 so that we can study it a little better. Our introduction to Ahab and his wickedness is contrasted by another introduction at the beginning of chapter 17. We have to understand that. The introduction to the prophet Elijah is the introduction that I'm referring to in chapter 17. Up to this point, up to this point, up to what we have read, <clears throat> there is no prophet that has been around to address the house of Omri. But that quickly changes as we jump into chapter 17. Elijah is Ahab's opposite. That is something that we also have to understand as we go through chapter 17 and beyond. Where Ahab hates God, Elijah loves God. Where Ahab disobeys God, Elijah fully obeys God. Where Ahab is given to idolatry and the worship of false gods, Elijah is given to worshiping the one true God of Israel. In fact, the name Elijah means the Lord is God. Meaning that his very name confirms the purpose of his ministry. Now, two things to keep in mind, long-term and short-term. In the long-term, Elijah's purpose 
will be to pronounce judgment over the house of Omri, including Ahab and Jezebel. However, short term, there's an immediate issue which demands Elijah's attention. Namely, that issue is combating and eliminating the Baal worship which Ahab so heartily introduced and encouraged by marrying Jezebel and building Baal a house of worship and an altar. So there's two things to keep in mind here. The long term, as we read 17 and chapter 17 and 18 and 19 and 20 and 21, is that Ahab, excuse me, Elijah is here to pronounce judgment over the house of Omri. But in the short term, in verse 17, in chapter 17, his purpose is very clear. He is there to eradicate the false worship of Baal, or at least to initiate this uh, eradication. Even a brief and cursory review of the underlying effects Baal worship had on Israel will help us better understand why we read what we read in chapter 17. Let me give you some insight into what the landscape was in Israel as we start reading chapter 17. And not just the landscape, not the greenery like we see out here. No, the religious landscape. Let me give you some points of understanding of what was happening during this time from a religious point of view in Israel. First, as we read chapter 17, it is important to understand that there was an ongoing struggle between what commentators, scholars, call Yahwism and Baalism. It's cute, right? Yahwism, Baalism. I liked it. Uh, Yahwism describes the orthodox and traditional religion of people that believed in Yahweh, Jehovah, God, the true God. Whereas Baalism describes the ancient religion which existed for centuries in the Near East. Namely, in areas like Canaan and Phoenicia, and included the worship of Baal. Baalism significantly influenced both Israel and Judah, sadly. Well, there are many Baals, and that is something we have to understand. There is not just one Baal. There are many Baals. The Phoenician Baal, which is the Baal Jezebel worshipped, and consequently the Baal that Ahab and all of Israel worships was considered of all things a storm god this baal that jezebel worshiped was supposed to be in control of water of the rain he's a storm god aiming to discredit this baal and confirm the supremacy of yahweh elijah prays for a drought thereby putting baal to the test and proving the ineffectiveness of Baal as a storm god. But we have to understand that in so doing, Elijah upsets many in Israel, including many in government, not to mention Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel is particularly stung and infuriated by what Elijah does in chapter 17 because his actions will weaken her attempt at establishing Baal worship as the only kind of worship in Israel. See, she had started by saying that anybody could worship whatever they wanted to worship. It didn't matter. But that the worship of Baal should be allowed. 
But she was ending by saying, no, everyone must now worship Baal and Baal alone. Sound familiar? Anybody hear that nowadays? Right? I would say that we're in that stage right now of openness, right? Of greatness. So open-minded. We can look, look, just let me worship who I want to worship. And I'll let you worship who you want to worship. When in reality, what they're saying is, just give me a little bit of time to fool you, and then I'm going to make you worship who I want you to worship. If there's any confusion about that, just wait. But the example of Jezebel is evident. That's what she was trying to do. And so she's infuriated at this attempt. This is the backdrop of chapter 17. So with that said, hopefully we have a better understanding, a working knowledge, and we can jump into this study this morning. <clears throat> Beginning... With the first subpoint, Elijah's prophecy. Look at verse 24. Now, excuse me, verse 1. Now Elijah, the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Verses 1 through 6 describe a prophecy, and they describe a provision. The prophecy is given by God to Elijah, and Elijah is tasked with delivering the prophecy to Ahab, while the provision is given from God directly to Elijah. I don't know if you caught this or not, but it's almost like all of a sudden, Elijah just appears. There's, there's a surprise element to him. There's no introduction. There's no previous mention of him. He is just in chapter 17. Surprise, I'm here. And so we don't have a lot of information about him. Verse 1 refers to him as Elijah the Tishbite, making it likely that he was from Tishbe, which is located in Gilead. And this corresponds with the phrase, who was of the settlers of Gilead in verse 1. One. But although not much is known about Elijah, it is clear from chapter 17 through chapter 21, and we'll get there, that Elijah loves God. Of that, there is no doubt. He loves God, he loves the things of God, and he hates idolatry. He loves his God, and he hates the worship of false gods. In the second part of verse 1, Elijah delivers to Ahab with great boldness the prophecy God gave him. He appeals to his own physical presence in front of Ahab, and he tells Ahab that with the same certainty that he is standing before Ahab, with that certainty, it will not rain again until Elijah prays for rain guarantees him a drought the drought communicated by elijah is not accidental it's not happenstance it's purposeful why because remember 
pronouncing the drought over the land, by pronouncing the drought over the land, what's he doing? Elijah brings to the forefront the matter of which God or gods are real or true. If the Baal which Ahab and Jezebel worship is real and true, then the drought that he's pronouncing will not last. But if Baal is false and God, Yahweh, is true, then it will last. And what Elijah is pronouncing to Ahab in verse 1 will continue until Elijah prays for rain. It is not accidental. Elijah is actually pitting God and Baal against each other because he knows who will win this fight. You ever been in that situation? You ever been in a situation where you know that you or your big brother or your big sister will win this fight? fight i have all my friends growing up were very very big no that's okay you guys can laugh you know why because i'm not <laughs> right little guys make friends with big guys and that way i know hey i know who's gonna win the fight so i acted with confidence sometimes it was reckless confidence would run my mouth a little bit too much and my big friends weren't around. Got in trouble. But that's what he's doing. And the thing about God is that he's always around. He was going to win this fight. And you'll see, you'll see in a little bit, Ahab, he actually does start to run his mouth a little bit. He actually does start to, as we would say it in today's vernacular, talk a little bit of trash. But also in today's vernacular, they say, look, it ain't trash talking if you can back it up. And God backs up what he says. And so this is the situation in verse one. This leads to our second subpoint, <clears throat> which is God's instruction and provision. Verses two through six. Read these verses with me. The word of the Lord came to him saying, go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and lived by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. By the way, that last part there, that last section, feel free to answer or blurt it out loud. Uh, what does that remind us of? Yeah. Yeah. Israel in the wilderness, wandering, and God provides the very same way with bread and meat in the morning and the same thing in the evening. And so immediately you start to see this idea of provision of divine provision that is taking place before our very own eyes. Because in effect, look, let's not sugarcoat this. This is exactly what has gone on. Ahab has gone, excuse me, Elijah has gone to Ahab, the king of Israel, and he's picked a fight. He has pit his God against Ahab's God. And he said, my God's going to win. 
And as expected, there was some anger. There was some retaliation. And as a result, we're told in verse 2, verse 3, that the Lord tells him, you need to go away. Turn eastward. Hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. What we have to understand there is that the brook of Kareth was not in Israel. It was past the Jordan. It was east of the Jordan. These two verses, 2 and 3, describe the instruction, and it's interesting to note the authority of the instructions. Don't, don't lose sight of that authority. Notice, by using the phrase, the word of the Lord came to him, the instructions, once again, are elevated to what? To the same level of prophecy, of a prophetic word. These instructions were not to be understood as, as a mere suggestion or a recommendation. These instructions in verses 2 and 3 are given to him as something that you need to do and you need to do quickly. You need to do now. What are Elijah's instructions? Get away from here. Why? Because here is trouble. Ahab is here. And you need to get away from here, God tells him. So he goes eastward. He goes to the brook Kareth, which is not in Israel. Most, most commentators agree that God is sending Elijah to an inhospitable area. It's, it's located east of the Jordan, and it's known as the brook of Kareth. This area would provide good protection because it was hard to get there. Accessing this brook was difficult. The terrain was rocky. It was thorny. It was, it was in a sort of bowl. Accessing it was hard, and it was a great, great hiding place. Verse 4 describes the provision of God for Elijah. God would quench Elijah's physical thirst by the brook itself, and he would provide physical sustenance by way of the ravens, he says. I am reminded of God's faithful provision for Israel as they traverse the, the wilderness Verses 5 and 6 bring this section to a close, but are important because of this very detail. Follow me here. Notice in verse 5 that we see from Elijah's, excuse me, what we see from Elijah in verse 5 is obedience. He didn't complain. He didn't push back or attempt to negotiate with God. Instead, we're told he went and did according to the word of of the Lord. God, as soon as I read that, I said, Lord, may that be my children one day. No complaining, no pushing back, no, but I have a better idea, Dad. No, just doing. And then I returned to reality. But that is, that is the truth, right? That, that's what we see from Elijah. There is no pushback. He just obeys God. Equally as important is the fact that in verse 6, it confirms that God's provision for Elijah occurred exactly the way God said it would. And you have to understand this point. There was no deviation. There was not one difference in the slightest. Exactly the way God said he would provide for Elijah is exactly the way he provided. And why do I bring this up? Because a confirmation like this was necessary for Elijah in his circumstance. Think about when you're in a difficult situation. Think about when the last thing you're thinking of is trusting in the Lord. 
What is it that brings our hearts back? What is it that brings our head back to the reality of God being faithful to his word? It's not just one thing, but one of the things that is involved is God's track record, both in our lives and the lives of our Christian brothers and sisters. I don't have any reason to doubt God because he has never lied to me. He has never lied to any one of you, and he's not going to. His, his track record is perfect. It's unblemished. That was, that was a source of confidence for Elijah. In this situation, he knew that he could trust God. Let me just give you a quick application here of these six verses. Let me encourage you by asking you this question. What is your outlook on the provision you have today? I'll, I'll, I'll expand this a little bit. It, it is... is the provision that you enjoy today, the result of your hard work? Is it the result of your position or your prestige? Or is it clear to you this morning that the provision that you have, what you enjoy this morning, is directly from the Lord? We're tempted constantly to glorify ourselves, to magnify ourselves, to put ourselves on a pedestal as if we have anything to do with our own success. And the world would take great offense at what I just said because they would say something like, you don't understand how hard it is to obtain an MBA. You don't understand how hard it is to go through the studies that I had to go through. No, I understand. And I'm not diminishing the effort. I'm simply saying that without God, you don't even have, I don't even have the capacity to go through those studies. I don't have the intelligence necessary to complete those studies. And so if I have anything today, it is not by my effort. It is not because of what I have done. It is by the grace and mercy and provision of God. I hope that's what our outlook is regarding provision. We have to move on. The widow of Zarephath, verses uh, 7 through 16. It happened, excuse me, beginning in verse 7. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Seraphath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a jar that I may have no, excuse me, that I may have a drink. She was going to get it, and he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little 
oil in the jar and behold i am gathering a few sticks that i may go in and prepare for me and my son we may eat it and die then elijah said to her do not fear go do as you have said but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me and afterward you may make one for yourself and for your son for thus says the lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and her, she and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord which he spoke through Elijah. A few quick observations about this section. Even Elijah isn't exempt from the effects of the drought. And why do I say that? Because even Christians aren't exempt from the consequences of this world. Even Christians are not exempt from going through what this world will bring everyone's way. As verse 7 makes clear, Elijah has to move. The drought eventually made its way to Elijah's hiding place. And the brook, which had once quenched his physical thirst, has now dried up. Verse 8, once again we see the authoritative phrase, the word of the Lord. Suggesting what? Suggesting that, that again, he's about to hear from God and this isn't a recommendation. This isn't, a, I think you should do this. This is, get your stuff and go now. That is what God is saying to him in verse 8. The word of the Lord leads Elijah to head to Zarephath. We're told in verse 9 because God has commanded a widow to provide for Elijah. And by the way, consider what he is being told. First, go to the brook at Kerith which is outside of Israel, by the way. And there, I'm going to have birds feed you. And now he's being told, hey, pack your stuff and go to Zarephath, which is in the Phoenician area. And I've prepared a widow to provide for you. I don't know how many of us would share his willingness to obey God with that information. And, and, and I'll say very quickly here, because the, the time is, is starting to haunt me, but it, it's, if you doubt that God has a sense of humor, consider just for a little bit, Luke, my middle son and I, we were talking about this the other day, because he has my type of sense of humor. And one, we have no issue making fun of ourselves. Okay, that's, that's got to be first and foremost. In our house, if you're not going to laugh at yourself, we're going to make more fun of you. So you better get used to it. Okay? You got to laugh at yourself. But we're also going to laugh at a lot of things that people do. A lot of silly things that people do. And so I've often wondered, why, why are you like that? Where do you get that from? It's got to be from my Heavenly Father. Because look, look at what God does here 
as the story unfolds, we find out that God did in fact tell the widow that she was going to provide for Elijah. So I'm not suggesting that God didn't do what he said he had done. It's just that the widow didn't know that God had told her that, he, that she was supposed to provide for Elijah. And so Elijah comes to Zarephath, and, and what does he do? This is a funny account here. He, he arrives and starts speaking to the widow as one would speak to a person if they have been told, hey, she's going to provide for you. Right? He starts saying, um, let, me have a, let me have some water, please. <laughs> There's no introduction. There is no, hey, I'm you know, Elijah. I'm the prophet of God. God has told you that you're to provide. No, he just kind of barges in. And can I have some water, please? Which I'm sure was appreciated by the, uh, by the widow. And, and as, she, as she goes to get him the water, he interrupts her and he says, oh, and, and hold on, could you bring me a cake, please? Could you bring me just a little piece of cake? To which he finally figures out the reality of the situation. She says, I don't, I don't have any cake. I don't have any food. I, I just have a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. <laughs> and to make matters worse but funnier, she says, and I'm going to cook it. Here's my, here's my grand plan. I'm going to cook it. I'm going to make a little cake. My son and I are going to eat it, and then we're going to die. <laughs> Can you imagine Elijah's face? I mean, you have to imagine Elijah's face. Like, the Lord must be laughing in heaven right now. Tell me that he told this widow, but she doesn't know that God told her that she's to provide for me. Anyway, I thought that was funny. Elijah once again rises up. He exhibits obedience without complaining, obedience immediately. But as, as he approaches the widow and as they have this interaction, it is, it is evident to Elijah that the purpose is bigger here. It's grander here. Elijah's response is unexpected in verse 13. Because knowing the widow's situation, he still asks her to ignore her circumstances and prepare a cake for him. In verse 13, Elijah begins his response by saying, Do not fear. This phrase is to be understood to mean that she should no longer dread her situation. She should no longer dread her circumstances or be in fear of the lack of of provision. The manner in which verse 13 reads, and, and I hope you're looking at verse 13, there is an inexplicable certainty in Elijah's actions. Look at that. He, he doesn't say maybe. He says, do not fear. Do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. Notice the certainty. And afterward, you may make one for yourself and one for your son. What he should have said is, and then you can die. Make me my cake and then you can. But he says, no, he's, he's assuming God's provision there. He already knows God is going to do what he has said he was going to do. 
guaranteed. What a beautiful, beautiful display of faith. The basis for Elijah's confidence and seemingly brash and selfish request of the widow is not Elijah himself. Instead, it is God Almighty. Elijah knows what God has told him, what God has done in order to care and provide for him to this point. And as a result, he knows that God will continue to provide for him and he will provide for this widow. It is unbelievable. I'll finish with an application at the end there. But let me finish this last section, 17 through 24. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick, and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity and remembrance and to put my son to death. He said to her, Give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. He called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, you have also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray, let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. What a wonderful, wonderful blessing. Consider this. She goes from not having any food, and her grand plan being to prepare one last cake to share it between her and her son and then die with her son to actually losing her son. I think we can all agree that that's what we would say is going from bad to worse. And I bring this to your attention because life is like that sometimes. We're going to be faced as Christians in this world, with situations that will seem to us like we're going from bad to worse. That's a difficult thing. There was nothing that brought on this young man's death. We're not even really told why he died. We're just told that he died. As a reader, standing from afar, having the benefit, the understanding of God and his purposes, of God's provision, we can see now in this woman's life why God did what he did. And so <clears throat> I want to encourage you with this. We don't have the benefit, although I oftentimes wish that we did, to step back as we do when we read God's word about somebody else and read it with that kind of perspective. We don't get to read our own lives with that kind of perspective. We don't see it. 
Oftentimes we don't understand, undoubtedly, like this woman didn't understand why God was doing what he was doing at that very moment. So many times in life we don't understand why God is doing what he's doing with us. Because we're living through it, we don't have the perspective to step away and read with understanding. Live with understanding. I'm not here to show you the secret on how to live with that kind of understanding. I am here to point that out to you, though, and encourage you with this one thought as we close. Though you and I traverse difficult situations in this life, though you and I go through hard times, seemingly from bad to worse situations, It is important for us to understand that there is one who has stepped back from all of it. There is one who has preordained our lives from eternity past. There is one who never loses perspective, never loses control, and is never worried about our provision. It is God. It is Yahweh. It is Christ. And I'll just, I'll say this. In addition to all of the provision that God gives us from a physical perspective, the greatest provision that God has provided for us here today is spiritual. And that he has provided a way to reconciliation with him through Christ, his son. If you're a believer, that should be the ultimate encouragement to you this morning. And if you are an unbeliever, I pray that this thought of spiritual provision haunts you. And I mean that with all due respect, but I pray that it haunts you till you turn your heart from sin to God. Accept that provision on his behalf. Let's pray. Father, your word is amazing. So thankful. Such a blessing. It is such a blessing to study it. It is such a blessing to to teach it. And I do pray for all of us here, Lord, that we would, in this coming week, with all the challenges that we will face, we would be encouraged by the fact that you maintain ultimate perspective, you are our provider, and in you we can trust. You have a spotless track record. But if if our perspective is different, Lord, if, if we don't know you personally, I do pray that this thought, Lord, would sit in our hearts that we would not enjoy peace, Lord, that we would wrestle with this thought, that you would break unbelieving hearts down to the knowledge that they must humble themselves before you, ask for forgiveness, and accept your salvation. I pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.